0: I'm going to be reading this morning from Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears." We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word and for what you have revealed here of yourself and your ways and your will. I pray, God, that our hearts would be open to you and that you would, by your Spirit, God, just draw us to yourself, work in us of your good pleasure, as only you can do. We're not here, God, just to hear a man's words. We want to hear from you. And, and through our lives, God, to be brought by the power of your spirit and your word into greater conformity to your son, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you all may not know this, but um, I do because... We have three Canadians in our family, and tomorrow is Canadian Thanksgiving Day. And that always is just remarkable to me that the Canadians have a Thanksgiving Day because they have so little to be thankful for. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Now, we Americans, we have so much to be thankful for. And especially if you're a Texan. (laughs) You may not know this, but if you grew up in Germany or Austria or Switzerland, they don't even have Thanksgiving over there. It's not surprising. Um, (laughs) Now, witnessing to people is a lot like that. Canadians are so much more spiritual than most people because they have nothing to be thankful for and they still have a Thanksgiving day. (laughs) Um, Some people just seem to be more inclined toward the Lord than others do, easier to witness to them. They're ready, um, they're inclined, they're searching. And others are just hard to reach for the Lord. And Paul, right here in this one chapter, chapter 17, he again is running into three different cities and three different spiritual climates toward the Lord. Um, Thessalonica, a church is formed, and and Paul later writes two letters to that church, fantastic church. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. But it was also a city that was not warm to those things, even though many had placed their faith in Christ and the Jews raised up a persecution against Paul, and he was driven out of the city. So he goes to Berea, and there he finds people that are wide open. And and when he presents the, the gospel to them, the resurrection of Christ, man, they are eager to hear it, and they go straight to their Bibles to see if these things are true. Good for you, Berea. Now Paul comes to Athens. He's all alone. He's left his traveling companions back in Thessalonica and Berea. And he comes to Athens, and Athens is known around the world for its intellectualism. This is where the really smart people live. The elites of society are in Athens. And this is a harder place to reach. There will be very few people that will come to faith in this area. That doesn't, shouldn't surprise us. We know even today that it's the intellectuals that are often the hardest to see come to faith in Christ. This is a city full of philosophers and full of idolatry. The two main philosophies of the time that were represented in Athens was, was the philosophy of, of the Epicureans and the other of the Stoics. And you know what a philosopher is. A philosopher is someone who gives incomprehensible answers to unsolvable problems, and they love to spend their day just thinking and coming up with solutions that no one can understand, and many times to questions that people aren't even asking. Um, Paul will tell us when he writes to the Colossians, stay away from philosophy. It's just a trap, and it'll not lead you to Jesus, typically. It is also a city not only of philosophy, but of, of idolatry. Athens, at this time, when Paul visited, we believe, was a city of about 10,000 people. But guess how many idols they had. 30,000 idols in a city of 10,000. One person said that if you walked the streets of Athens, you were more likely to bump into a god than you were to a man. Because there were so many idols in that city. A very, very pagan city and, of, and much of a city of pride of intellectualism, and how do you witness to people like that? Well, Paul did his normal thing, and he went to the synagogue. I said last week there wasn't one in Athens. I don't know what I was thinking. There is a synagogue, was a synagogue in Athens. He went there as he always did, but he also was speaking in the marketplace. But before we even get to that, it says in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, waiting for his traveling companions to come back to him, his spirit was being provoked within him, as he was beholding the city full of idols. We often hear people want to say that every culture is of equal value. That is not true. There are things in some cultures that are absolutely evil. And in other cultures don't have those things. I'm not saying any culture is righteous and one is, you know, is just inherently righteous and another one is inherently evil. But some cultures are by nature, worse than others. That is a fact. Um, Talk to missionaries who've gone in as pioneer missionaries in different places, and and they'll tell you, um, in some countries, for example, when um, when, when twins are born, I think this was true in Papua New Guinea years ago, when twins were born, they considered that to be an evil thing, and they would just throw them in the river and drown them. How can that be morally equivalent to a culture that does not drown twins? So there's no such thing as moral equivalency between cultures. Some things are more inherently evil than others. And idolatry is something that provokes God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul's spirit is provoked as he walks through this city. This city was, in a sense, worse than other cities. It was certainly more full of idolatry than other cities were. And Paul is agitated, he is provoked as he walks through this city. That's as much, perhaps, a miracle maybe, maybe that's overstating, it probably is, but at least that's as, that's as interesting and, and um, insightful, I think, as anything else in this passage to me. Because I think how, how we can get so complacent about the world that we live in, that we're no longer being provoked in our spirits by the things that are going on around us. And so it speaks to Paul's spiritual sensitivity that in this secular world that he's, of this city that he's walking through, he is not happy with what he sees, and it truly provokes him. We know a lot when he was living in Sodom that it says that his righteous soul was tormented as he lived in Sodom but he continued to live in Sodom. And if he was sharing his faith, he wasn't very effective because no one came to faith in God. Paul is not complacent. And so the first word of verse 17 is so. His spirit was provoked within him because of all the idolatry he was seeing, so he did something. And what he did... Verse 17, he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue and with the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace he was reasoning every day with those who happened to be present. And this is unique. And it's not saying that this never happened in any other city that Paul went to, but Luke is highlighting it here. He wasn't just going to the synagogue. Paul was going into the marketplace every day and seeking to reason with those who were willing to, to be reasoned with, as I noted last week, that you, that's a, being reasonable isn't it? is not itself a good thing, and it's not often what we see. We're not we're finding in our society today people are becoming increasingly less willing to reason about what they believe, and so Paul's looking for reasonable people that he can reason with about what is true concerning Christ, and so he bumps into these. Epicureans, verse 18, Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. What are they? Well, for this, I'm going to quote from Warren Wiersbe. He did a really good job, I thought, just being very simple with what these two philosophies believe. We still have them around today, we just don't call them this. Paul had to confront two opposing philosophies as he witnessed in Athens, those of the Epicureans and the Stoics. We today associate the word Epicurean with the pursuit of pleasure and the love of fine living. And there's a hotel that I stay at when I go out, to, when I've been out the last couple of years in Florida to preach, and they put me up in a hotel called the Epicurean. Um, so that's, it's about the, ple- the pursuit of pleasure and the love of fine living, especially fine food. But the Epicurean philosophy involved much, much more than that. In one sense, the founder, Epicurus was an existentialist in that he sought truth by means of personal experience and not through reasoning. The Epicureans were materialist and atheist, and their goal in life was pleasure. To some, pleasure meant that which was grossly physical. But to others, it meant a life of refined serenity, free from pain and anxiety. The true Epicurean avoided extremes and sought to enjoy life by keeping things in balance. But pleasure was still his number one goal. The Stoics rejected the idolatry of pagan worship and taught that there was one world God. A, and, and they were pantheists and their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control. So you can see, the, well, why are they even in Athens, in Athens, Epicureans? They don't even believe that there's an afterlife. They are pure atheist materialists, And the Stoics, on the other hand, they're pantheists. They don't believe in a, in a personal God who's personally involved in this world. But then it goes on, it says, pleasure was not good and pain was not um, evil to the Stoics. The most important thing in life was to follow one's reason and be self-sufficient um, I'm unmoved by inner feelings or outward circumstances. A little funny story there. Not so much funny as sad. Unmoved by outward circumstances. That's a stoic. That's where we get some. That guy is so stoical in how he approaches life. There was a stoic philosopher that one of the emperors wanted to see just how far he could go in being unmoved by outward circumstances... And he had him on the floor, and he was, and the, guy, the Stoic philosopher was on his face on the floor, and the emperor was standing on his back and bringing his leg backwards. And the Stoic philosopher very stoically said, if you continue to twist my leg like that, it will break. Snap! Yes, I told you, my leg would break. And so that's a tr- apparently a true story from a Stoic who, even with his leg being snapped in half, um, remained stoical. The most important thing in life was to follow one's reason and be self-sufficient, unmoved by inner feelings or outward circumstances. Of course, such a philosophy only fanned the flames of pride and taught men that they did not need the help of God. Interesting, the first two leaders of of the Stoic school committed suicide. The Epicureans said, enjoy life, and the Stoics said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how they could enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. So that's good. That's helpful. So Paul is reasoning with people in the synagogue, reasoning with people in the marketplace, and it comes to the attention of the philosophers. And they said, middle of verse 18, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Now, idle babbler can also be translated seed picker. And it was not a pleasant flattering term. It was a, It's a picture of a bird that just walks along on the ground, moving from manure pile to manure pile, picking out the seeds. And they're going, that's what Paul is. And so they're saying, this guy doesn't have anything original to say, nothing new to say. Now, that's important because As Luke's going to tell us in his side commentary in verse 21, look at that. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So as they listen to Paul talk, they go, he's a seed picker. All he's done is just pick a little bit here, pick a little there. He's got nothing original to say. And so this is, um, they're mocking him already. They don't think that he can tell them anything new. They don't think he can speak any truth to them other than what he's picked up and gleaned from other sources. What would this idle babbler wish to say? They are the idle babblers, but they're projecting their own idle babbling onto Paul. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That little statement is real important in this context because as you read through Paul's sermon, which is coming up, and we're going to be looking at it real quickly here, you don't hear... Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You don't get the gospel in reading through this sermon. But we know that Paul was giving them the gospel because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. So the sermon that Luke is going to record for us is not everything that Paul was saying. But they're interested, it would seem. And so they took him and they brought him to the Oropocos, which is the temple of the pagan god Eris, which is the God of war. And so Paul is meeting in a a pagan temple area with these men, and they said, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. Now, Paul, thankfully, understood that he has nothing new to say to these people. That his goal is not to philosophize with these men. It's not to outwit them. It's not to conquer their intellect. See, one person observed, and I really appreciated the... the, It was just a simple but keen observation. Israel never produced philosophers. It was all the other countries that produced philosophers. Israel didn't. Israel produced prophets. People who simply proclaim the truth. And our goal in life is not to outwit, outsmart, outthink people who consider themselves intellectuals. We are simple proclaimers of the truth. And Paul's as smart as any guy up on that hill. He's been to the finest schools, and he is not going to try and match wits with them. He is going to give a very simple, almost embarrassingly simple message to these men who consider themselves smarter than anybody on the planet. I'm impressed that he wasn't uh, bashful about going, We know that he wouldn't have been because of what he wrote in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the very power of God unto salvation. It is simple. It is uncommonly simple. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for seeing people's lives changed. So Paul goes and he begins his sermon in verse 22. Very, very simple and straightforward. Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagos and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That was neither a compliment or a criticism. It was just a fact. He's not complimenting them. He's not criticizing them. He just said, I've seen that you are very religious. What gives him that idea? 30,000 idols in this city. You're obviously very religious people. Sometimes religious people, again, are very difficult to witness to because they're trusting in their religion and think that that's enough and they're not placing their trust in Christ. He explains himself, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, he didn't find an idol with this inscription, but an altar Because it would make no sense to have an idol to an unknown God. Because an idol presupposes that you know the God's name and you know how he reveals himself to this world. But this is an unknown God. We don't know his name and we don't know how he reveals himself. So there's an altar to him. There is no idol for him. What therefore you worship in ignorance. Man, talk about getting in your face. You guys with all your education... All your PhDs, he says, you're ignorant. I don't think they probably ever in their lifetimes had anybody do that. But he has to start with that place. You are religious, but you're ignorant. And thankfully, you acknowledge it. Now that's a good starting point. The starting point is not the religion. The starting point is the acknowledgement is pointing out to them, you have acknowledged, you don't know everything. So let me tell you here about the God that you admit that you don't know. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. He is creator. Now, again these Epicureans would have had trouble with that because they believed in a materialistic world. So how can you start with a materialist and tell him God created this world? Don't you need to argue that? Don't you need to provide proof, proof for that? Paul doesn't argue. He doesn't, Paul, and again, I've got no problem with apologetics and there's all kinds of proofs that Paul could have brought here to bear and maybe he did go into this more than what Luke is, is showing us but I don't think so. I think Paul just says God created this world, and that's enough. And there's lots of people with all their smarts would go prove it. And I think Paul would say it's self-evident. You don't need to prove what is self-evident. And I've said it before, and I'm a simple person, so I'm trusting you're like me. <laughs> I know you're all smarter than me are, than I am, me are. And um, I started to do it, but I forgot. If you, if, you know, but if I'd just gone back in the kitchen here and taken a toothpick and brought it up here and shown you a toothpick, you would have to come to the conclusion that it was man-made. Nature won't even make a toothpick. It is not alive. It is not complicated. It is one item, wood. And it is smooth and has a point on both ends. And I can guarantee you you can walk the forest of this planet for the rest of your life and you will never find a natural made toothpick. And if you're walking across the forest and you find a toothpick, you know somebody put it there. It is self-evident. You don't have complex living organisms that came into being by their own. There must be a creator. We know this. And the only way you can get around that is to go to university and get an education that makes you stupider than the average guy walking the street. (laughs) Really, you have to go to school to get that dumb. It is self-evident that there is a creator. And that's where Paul just starts. God made this world. The God who made this world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Now again, that is a logical connection. If he is the creator of the world and everything in it, then guess what? He's the Lord of the earth and everything in it. Who else is going to be Lord but the one who made it all? He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. This is, again, self-evident. How can the God who created this universe dwell in a building that a man made? That makes no sense. Neither is He served by human hands. And He explains what He means by that, as though He needed anything. The God who created this world You cannot add to Him as part of that creation. What could you possibly give to God? And what is religion but giving to God? You can't contribute to God. You can't add anything to what God already has. He doesn't need you. He created you, and He does not need you. Religion does not serve God. As though he needed anything, since he himself, he's the one who gives life, and to, he gives life to all and breath to all things. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now he's hitting at their Athenian pride. You think you're something great? God made Athens. God made Greece. God made this world and all the nations and all the people that are in this world. He's not trying to argue and persuade and bring and answer all their thoughts and their questions and their objections. He's simply proclaiming the truth. He's a prophet here, not a philosopher. If you're looking to have all your philosophical objections answered, you're not going to get it in the Bible because God is simply proclaiming to us the truth. And we either, either we accept it Or we don't. I'm impressed by this. Again, I like studying apologetics. And I'm thankful for for the different ones that I've sat under who are truly gifted in that area. But very, very few people convert to Christianity because of apologetics. The evidence is self-evident. There is a God. He is Creator. Creator. And we are accountable to him because he is Lord. Verse 27, he has done all these things that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And in that, he goes after the Stoics, who think that God is this pantheistic God who is, who is intermingled with creation, and he's not personal, he doesn't interact with us, he Creation is God and not something God has made. He says, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. That is a universal truth. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, this does not mean that every single person is born again. Obviously, there'd be no reason for this evangelistic sermon if that were true, but all people have been made by God, is Paul's point. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image from formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, now he gets to his application, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all, everywhere, should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead so let me just distill down to the most basic elements i think of what paul's saying here there is a god he is creator And judgment is coming. It comes down to that. There is a God. He created this world. And a day of judgment is coming. We must deal with Jesus. Now those are three things. There is a God. He is creator. And he is judge. That is, are universally known to the heart of man. And if any person tells you he does not know those things, it is because he has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. It's as simple as that. Go with me and look at Romans chapter 1. And by the way, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness doesn't mean that a person is going out and taking an axe and murdering his neighbors, it just means he will not yield to the truth that he knows. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the basis for God's wrath? Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That is conscience. And Paul's going to talk about that more in chapter 2. He says, when the Gentile who does not have the law instinctively does the things of the law, does, and it goes on and argues from there. So he goes, he goes, you don't even have to be a Christian to know right and wrong and to know that wrong should be punished and right should be rewarded. No one has to teach you that. That is in you. It's called Conscience. And I got news for you, materialistic Epicurean. Materialism has no explanation for conscience. Evolution has no explanation for conscience. The fact that every single human being has a conscience tells you he has been made in the image of God. He is not simply material. There is an immaterial aspect to his being. Conscience is witness to that. So It is what is known about God is evident within them, creation. For God made it evident to them, and by that he means creation, conscience and creation. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, meaning from the very beginning, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Judgment is coming. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. He must have been thinking of the Athenians as he wrote this. Professing to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Professing to be wise, like the Athenians, they became fools. Every single person on the basis of conscience and creation, knows there is a God. Hebrews 11:6 says that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him, and all those who come to Him must believe He is. So that's the starting point. There is a God. And you know that. Every single person knows that. And if He is God, then He is creator. And if he is the creator, it means I'm accountable because I'm not the creator. I'm a creature, and I'm accountable to the one who made me. The three basic questions that, that every person has to answer, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? What comes next? And our conscience and creation points us we must deal with God. Because He's not just God. He's not just Creator. He is also Judge. And judgment is coming. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Because when I recognize who God is and recognize that He is the Creator and He is the righteous Judge, then I must recognize my sin. This is the issue. And the intelligent and even many of the religious of the world refuse to acknowledge sin. It's not surprising, because if I acknowledge my sin, then I have to acknowledge there is a righteous one that I have to stand before. Look at First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, same message. He doesn't change the message. It is the power of God. One person hears the gospel and goes, that makes no sense to me. Another person hears the gospel and says, this is how I can be saved. Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And once again, Paul could have run circles. Intellectually, around anybody at Mars Hill that day. He wasn't stupid. This is a brilliant man. He could have stood there and argued philosophically with all those guys and, and tried to win them over. He didn't do it because all that would be smokescreen. The issue is they must deal with what they already know. God is. He is the creator. He is judge. And we must stand before him and face him. We all know these things. And so Paul simply gives a simple message that he knew by most of his audience would be considered foolishness. I came across a little um, story that J. um, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones Many, from many years ago, brilliant, brilliant man, was doing a series of lectures at a, at a major Ivy League university. And um, after he gave his, his sermon, and there was a time for question and answer. And one of the students stood up and said, Sir, I, I have to admit that was one of the finest sermons I've ever heard in my life. It's well-reasoned, well-presented. But isn't it true that you could have given that message to any just... Common farmhand, and the whole audience just broke up laughing. Well, Dr. Jones, Martin Jones, didn't skip a beat. He stood up and said, You know, I gave that sermon with the assumption that we are all made of the same common clay, and we are all sinners in need of a savior. So, yes. My sermon is the same sermon I'd give to a bunch of common field hands is what I gave to you. Good for you. There's not one message for the intellectuals and another for the illiterate. It is simply Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He could have, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Man, don't you love God's wisdom? Had Paul stood there And argued those men with those men, to where every single objection had been answered. They would have been tempted for the rest of their lives to say, "We believe because of Paul," until somebody else comes with another another objection, and they go, "Where's Paul?" And that's why it doesn't rest upon the wisdom of men, but it rests upon the power of God, our salvation. So when Paul's finished and he's brought them to the point of God raising the dead through Jesus Christ, their response is three different responses. Back to chapter 17 of Acts, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. No surprise. They were never interested to begin with. And this is a joke to them. It makes no sense to them. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And apparently Paul said, no, you won't. Because there is no record of Paul going back to the Oropagus, to Mars Hill, and once again sharing with these men. One time. Now, we're not God, and we don't know whose hearts are inclined and whose are not. But there's something going on in that meeting that Paul had with these men where he said, this is not going to happen again. These people, apparently in Paul's mind, are going, the ones that that responded, we're done. There's not going to be any more. And he did not go back into this there comes a point when you go, you know, there are no more questions that need to be answered. I've given you the truth. See, these guys weren't after the truth. They spent their time in doing nothing other than telling or hearing something new. It was entertainment value for them. Many years ago, when I had finished my year at His Hill as a student, went back down to Corpus Christi, was attending the college down there. There was an evangelistic meeting going on, crusade all through the state of Texas. And um, I got sucked into that. Um, and glad I did, but it was painful for me because I just was terrified of sharing my faith. And, and so you, you, you had to go sit in a room and the people would call and you'd, get, and you'd give them the gospel on the phone. And then if they... If they wanted more um, conversation, then you had to say you are available to come and meet with them. Oh, my word, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And I didn't know I was going to have to do that. Two things happened as a result of that. I've shared these stories before. One good, one bad. The good one is this guy said, yeah, I I'd, I'd really, I'd really want to meet you in person and talk to you. Okay. I got uh, terrified. So I you know, set up a time. Saturday morning. Gives me his apartment. And so I show up. I am absolutely, absolutely terrified. And so this guy comes to the door. Not actually him. One of the two women he was living with came to the door. And I'm going, Oh my word, what have I got myself into? He's living with two women. He's got half a dozen kids in in this little apartment. TV's blaring. And he comes out, sits in the living room, says, Thank you for coming. I really wanted to follow up on our conversation. And I'm going, God, I can't talk to this man. I don't know what to say. The TV's blaring. They've got all these kids sitting around. And, and, and the Lord just says, you know, immediately answers me. And the guy says, kids, turn the TV off. Get over here and sit down and face this guy and be quiet. So I've got this guy, two women he's living with, half a dozen kids, and I've got a captive audience here. And I'm still going, rapture, 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 rapture. <laughs> Scared to death. I don't even know what I said to that man. When I got back to my apartment, and the phone was ringing, and I hadn't even given him my phone number, but he was listening, this guy, and he got my name, first and last name, found me in the phone book back when we had phone books, and he, and he called me up, and he says, I just want you to know, Charlie, my brother is a Baptist preacher, and he's been trying to get through to me my entire life, and today, for the first time, it made sense. Thank you. Wow, that didn't happen because of my intellectual reasoning and answering all this guy's questions. I simply gave him the gospel. And by the Spirit of God, and there's always the Spirit of God involved. It's a mystery. Jesus said, it's it's like the wind blowing. We will not fully understand how the Spirit works. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that day, that man believed and got saved. The other story, college student, young girl, she wants to meet with me. So we met, and I again told her everything I told her over the phone. Well, that's wonderful. That's great. Okay, end of meeting. She calls me up. Let's meet again. I'm going, no, because it was very clear to me. And I told her on the phone, I have told you everything you need to know to have a personal relationship with Jesus there is nothing more I can tell you but if you really really need someone else to talk to I've got two or three women I can recommend but you and I we're done I was a lot more blunt in those days than I am today (laughs) and I never heard from her again she didn't want any names from those other women but I knew I've gone as far as I can go with this girl it's time for somebody else not my rule anymore. And that's where Paul was. They sneered. Others said, come on back. And Paul's going, that would be a waste of time. I'm not going to come back. And a few believed. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysus, the Aropagite, Aropagite however you say that, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So it wasn't a complete loss. Even in Athens, there were those who believed. But on the whole, it was a bunch of really, really smart people who were not getting any closer to the truth by spending all of their time wanting to listen to something new. And Paul walks in, and very, very simply tells them what they already knew he wasn't trying to tell them something new there is a god he is the creator and he is also the judge and you know you need to repent and you know you need to place your faith in the one that god has offered for us jesus christ i'll close us in prayer God, I thank you that we don't have to be profound. We don't even have to be powerful. The message that you have entrusted us with is the very power of God unto salvation. And it does not depend upon us. You don't need us. But you have privileged us, God, to be co-workers with you in the sharing of the message of life with others. Thank you God that the basics of what men need to know is already written on their hearts. And our job is only to speak of the one that they don't know, Jesus. I pray God that we would not be embarrassed or ashamed of speaking of him. And we acknowledge God, we that not all will respond and some will sneer they'll mock us consider us fools I pray that we'd be willing for that that we would remember our calling not many wise not many noble that you have chosen to call the foolish things the weak things so that your wisdom and power would be made known Thank you that Jesus has become, become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. And it is by your doing that we are in Christ. Make us bold, clear, and simple in making Him known in this world. And I pray God that all that we talk to, that they would hear your voice. Acknowledge what they know to be true. There is a God. He is creator, and he is judge. And we are accountable. Thank you for your saving power and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.